Always a challenge with a, with a mask on, isn't it, with a microphone? Um, I'm going to put a photo up. Um, this couple here, that's uh, Charles and Marie Robertson. Now, he was an investment banker, and she was heir to... Um, there was a grocery chain in the US called A&P, and they had hundreds and hundreds of uh, shops all over the US. So it's a bit like Walmart today. They were massive. Like, we're talking massive. So she was an heir of that family. So basically, they're loaded. These guys are loaded with cash, right? And so in 1961, they made the largest single gift up until that point to any educational institution. $35 million was given to Princeton University in the US. $35 million. Now, that money compounded over time. By 2008, the value of the endowment was $930 million. So they'd given this gift, and it was worth um, $930 million. But they gave instructions with the money. They said, the money is to be used specifically to encourage graduate students into government service, particularly in the area of international relations and affairs. Uh, that building in the middle was built out of this fund as well, and uh, from the proceeds, and it was named in their honour. So they gave the money, and they told the university what it was to be used for. Now, you, it's right, isn't it? If you've got some money and you want to donate it, that you can actually tell people, I want it used for this purpose. You can donate the money saying, I want it used for this purpose. You give money to a cause, you can specify how it's used. So the intention of the donor is really important when it comes to giving gifts. The donor has a right to say how the donation is going to be used. That's only right and fair. Let's go to the next slide. In 2002, the Robertson family, this is the children of the, those two parents, brought a lawsuit against the university, claiming that the money that was donated was no longer being used for the purpose for which it was given. In fact, the family argued the university did not even ask the students who were benefiting whether or not they were going to enter government service. There was no connection between the, what the gift was for and what it was actually being used for. Uh, so they claimed the university was not honouring the intent of the donors. They went to court. The final court decision came down and the family, by and large, was seen to be in the right. They were awarded cost and a substantial amount of money was taken out of the endowment and given to them to start a new foundation to actually do what the money was used for so they could honour the intention of their parents, encouraging graduates into government service. Now, when a case like this comes before the court, it's increasingly being seen that the donor, the intention of the donor needs to be upheld. What the donor provides uh, and, the, and what they say needs to be used for needs to be honoured. It's very important that when a group receives a donation, they use it in the way the donor intended. Now, this has become a major case, uh, this, this case, um, uh, an abusive donor intent uh, it comes back to this case, there's, there's case studies and books being written about this. Now, I think the outcome feels right. It, it has the sort of passes the pub test. Uh, you give to an organisation, you put conditions around that, and you expect it's going to be used consistent with those conditions. If it isn't, we have this expectation that somebody's going to hold the organisation accountable for not using it in that way. You've got to honour the donor's intent. Now, I want to park that thought. Hold on to that thought about donor's intent, and we'll come back to it later. 
Of course, it's Palm Sunday. So are we Palm Sunday? Let's go Palm Sunday. Now, we don't, obviously don't know what it looks like, but there's a, a, a representation of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, palm trees. It's a bit narrow. There's probably a lot more crowd there at other times. But anyway, he's going up the street. This is beginning the final week of his ministry. He comes into the city, great crowds of people. They're all enthusiastic. Could this be the son of David? Could this be the king that was promised? Sent by God to rescue us from oppression, as we've already spoken about. Now, it's a bit, little bit unusual for a conquering king to enter on a donkey. But this links back to a prophecy uh, in Zechariah saying that he'd be riding on a donkey and so people are excited. This is even coming on a donkey excites them because this is part of the Jewish prophecy. They were hoping for this person to come on a donkey for centuries to be the coming king. So he's, he enters the city. He's welcomed by the crowds. He looks, it says it in Mark's gospel, he looks around at everything, goes into the temple, looks around at everything. And because it's late, he goes home. Uh, and prepares for his next action. He's staying out at Bethany, which is about three kilometers away from Jerusalem. Now, the next morning, so this is the day after, he does something quite surprising. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. We know him as Jesus, meek and mild. Uh, but he does something quite violent. Now, we're going to read from Mark's Gospel, because Mark's Gospel highlights this in a way the other Gospels don't quite highlight. So here's the text in Mark's gospel. This is Mark chapter, I think it's chapter 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, so they've gone back to Bethany and now this is the next morning. Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. So three kilometers away, he's hungry. He's walking into the city. There's a fig tree. It's got leaves. Checks it out and there's no fruit. It's not the season for figs, but Jesus wants figs. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, again, we're going to come back to this incident later. We've already parked the idea of donor intent. And now I'm parking the idea of uh, the fig tree has been... Jesus has said, no one's ever going to eat fruit from you again. And it's important to remember, the disciples heard him say it. They heard the words of Jesus. Okay, let's read on. Uh, verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not let, allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will, uh, will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, completely disrupts what's going on in the temple. Turns the tables over, disrupts the whole thing. Uh, in John's gospel, he's got a whip of cords and he's driving the animals out. This is quite a chaotic scene. It's important to get into perspective where this is, what's actually going on here. So let's have a look at the temple. This is the temple. So he goes into the temple. Uh, it's a massive building. This is obviously a model of the temple. 
you come in and there's a large outdoor area, very large area. You see that little, um, there's a little fence down in the corner. That's the limitation. The Gentiles can go as far as that fence and they can go no further. It's not a single area. There are several areas in the temple. It's quite a complex building. And this outside area is called the court of the Gentiles. That's where the, anyone from all over the world could come and they could at least participate from a distance. Uh, to, they hear about God. They'd heard about God uh, and they wanted to worship. So they would come and they would, could get that close, but no closer. Now, this is the, the week leading up to Passover. Estimates suggest there would be 200,000 pilgrims coming from all over the world, all over Israel and all over the world into this place to worship at the Passover. The Jews would do this as often as they could. They'd come each year to Passover. There's several festivals. This, the Passover was probably the main one. They would come into the courtyard and that people all over the world would be there. So imagine 200,000 people coming and going, bustling. It's like a, like a busy city. Now, because they had to travel a long way, they couldn't bring their sacrifices because they might be damaged on the way. So um, if you were coming from, say you were coming from Rome, it's a, long, it's a long journey to get to Jerusalem. You wouldn't bring your animals with you. There's a provision in the Old Testament that you could come, you could buy a sacrificial animal at the temple. So you would come, bring your money, you change the money into the temple money, and then you would buy this sacrificial animal, and they would guarantee that it's ready for sacrifice. It's perfect, it's not damaged, it's ready to go. Now, this system was endorsed in the Old Testament to do this. So it's all like, there's a legitimacy about it. So when we read, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Some of this is actually legitimate stuff. The Old Testament endorsed it. It was okay. Some of it. There had to be these transactions to, to buy these animals. The visitors had to get their sacrifices. Now, even the money changers kind of had a right to be there because you couldn't use money from overseas. You had to buy the temple. The temple had its own currency. So you had to get change your money. There was a legitimacy about them being there. But it was also problematic. Uh, it says that people were carrying merchandise through the temple and just said, Jesus, stop them doing that. The temple kind of sits on the edge of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives is over here. And if you want to go to the Mount of Olives, the quickest way is through the temple. So if you want to carry something in or out, you just go through the temple. Uh, forget about the fact that it's the temple. Just carry your stuff through. That's what was going on. And Jesus said, you can't do that. Don't take a shortcut through the temple just because it's more convenient. Go around if that's what you're there for. These people, they had no, there's no respect. There's no respect for the sacredness of the space. It'd be like today... Imagine if your church is located in the city and there's a restaurant behind and they're just bringing trolleys full of food and delivering stuff right through the middle of the church. That's kind of what would be happening. Just taking a shortcut and not, not being willing to go around. So they're taking this shortcut through the temple. They can't be bothered going around and they don't respect the sanctity of this place. It was just the quickest way through. And it's interesting where the animals are being traded and where the traders are sitting. 
they're not sitting in the Jewish part of the temple. They're sitting in the court of the Gentiles. That's where the animals were. You couldn't disrupt the Jewish worship, could you? So let's disrupt whatever is going on for the Gentiles. The Jewish worship was too important. That couldn't be disrupted. So the trading and the animals were all in the court of the Gentiles. That's the only place that non-Jewish people could come. And that's the place where all the animals were and that's where all the market things was going, was going on. So imagine you're in another nation. You hear about the God of Israel. Someone tells you, they say, this, this God in Israel is different than all the other gods. This is the God who created the universe. And you think, I want to check that out. So you'd come, you'd make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, probably around Passover time. And you would go up to the temple. You'd go through the gates, uh, through the doors, and you could only go into the court of the Gentiles. Uh, and you were meant to go there and you were, supposedly you would hear the, the Levites singing. You would hear the praises going on kind of in the, in the temple area. You'd, you'd, the sacrifice, the smell, you could smell the, the animals being sacrificed. That's all part of the experience in the Old Testament. But they didn't hear that. And probably they may not have smelled that because they're in this chaotic place with all these animals and all these merchants and hundreds of people um, sort of just milling around, running and here and throw through the temple. So if the Gentiles did hear about this God of Israel and they've, they made the effort to come, this is what they experienced. Not much of an atmosphere for worship. So when Jesus entered the temple on this day, so many years ago, this is the chaotic scene that he encountered. And he immediately sees this as a problem. And it's not a problem he's going to allow to continue. Jesus doesn't fix every problem, but when he sees this problem, he acts to bring an end to it. So he stops the merchants. He stops the people walking to and fro. He clears out the money changes. He literally overturns their tables. Can you imagine somebody going into the bank and just pulling all the, just whatever, a market, pulling the tables over, stopping people from moving. This is a violent action. You have to be physically imposing to do this. There's, in, in John's gospel, he's got a whip of cords. This is full-on public disorder. This is a violent response to the problem that Jesus sees in the temple. But it's not a response that doesn't have purpose. He offers an explanation. Why is he doing this? Why does he see it as such a problem? And this is what he says. Let's go to the next um, scripture. So he quotes, as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 56. In Isaiah chapter 56, Isaiah talks about a time when the foreigners and the eunuchs and the exiles are going to be brought into God's house. They've been excluded, but saying all of the people who are on the outside, there's coming a time when they're going to be welcomed. Their sacrifices and offerings will be accepted in my house, God says. That's what Isaiah 56 is saying. They will receive joy in my house of prayer. 
And this scripture uh, is all about people on the outside being welcomed and finding joy in the house of God. So the first part of the scripture tells us God's house is meant to be a house of prayer. The primary activity of the temple is to help people connect with God. That's what it's all about. There are all sorts of things they do in the temple, but prayer is the primary one. Now, I think it's broad, people connecting with God, people having conversations and interactions with their maker, bringing their offerings, performing their sacrifices, singing praise and offering prayer. That's what the temple's about. It's about God's presence being in the earth and people about having access to that presence. It's a restoration of the Garden of Eden where God walked with them in the garden in the cooler day. Not perfect, but this is what they had. This is what the temple's about. That's what it was designed for. The second part of the scripture tells us that God's house is a house of prayer for all nations. Throughout the Old Testament, you know, it's about Israel. God calls Abram. His descendants are coming to a special nation. He rescues them from Egypt. Uh, He sends prophets to them for hundreds of years. But even though the focus is on Israel, he's building this special nation, this idea again and again turns up, it's for the other nations as well. I am God of all the earth. I want to bless all the nations and I actually want to use you. I want to use you to be a blessing to all the nations, meaning his people. So God sets up the temple so he can be worshipped, so people can actually access his presence. But also... So the nations have somewhere to come so they can find out about this God. That was what was meant to happen. Gentiles were meant to hear. They hear about God. They hear about the the incredible things that are done, the, the laws, the wisdom and all that stuff. And they come to worship this God. Jesus turns up at the temple that day. He sees people walking to and fro, money changes, animals all over the place. Basically excluding the Gentiles, uh, sort of nudging them out from having any access to God. There's no room left for them. That's not a good context to be, to be introduced to the one true God. For this, and this is their only hope. Now, there's no doubt the Jewish people should have been worshipping. There, there's a place for them. The temple is set up to do that, but not only for them. There's also a space for the Gentiles. But they don't have much space left because of the way the Jews are monitoring and managing this thing. It's into that context that Jesus says, reminding them of Isaiah 56, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? Okay, I want to return to the the issue of donor intent. (laughs) Remember the gift to the university? The person who provides the gift has the right to say how those resources are used. Who provided the temple? Who provided the nation? Who provided everything for Israel? It was God. And Jesus quotes God's statement of intent for the temple. My house will be called the house of prayer for all nations. That's the donor's intention. Jesus comes into the temple. He sees all this stuff going on. He perceives that the Gentiles are excluded. He realizes things are not being done according to the donor's intention. 
So he quotes from Isaiah 56, reminds them of God's intention. A house of prayer for all nations. But the way the temple's being run is not faithful to that. And Jesus sums up, what have they been doing? You have made it a den of robbers. Instead of fulfilling God's desire, they were doing something else. Not only was it not a house of prayer, and not only was it not for all nations, it was actually corrupted. It's becoming a den of robbers. Uh, And probably this is inflated prices for the animals, uh, terrible exchange rates uh, when you had to buy these animals. Basically, they were ripping people off. And if you go through history, you look at the history of God's house, the temple, the church, uh, all through history, I think, not the buildings, I mean, it's really the people. I wonder whether these things have been at play. And I think, I think these things are always a temptation for God's people. Firstly, to substitute the core reality of a house of prayer to do other stuff. Now, that's not to say prayer is the only thing that churches should be doing, but it should be at the center. It is about connecting with God. That is the primary purpose. And sometimes we have to fight pretty hard to keep that at the center. And secondly, if we go down through history, I think we'd find the second issue, the second thing that Jesus criticizes, uh, the house of prayer for all nations, that's also something that gets challenged many times. The Jewish requirements for worship were important, but they had overtaken and polluted the area where the Gentiles could access God. Even though the focus on the Old Testament is Israel, it was always intended that the other nations would have a place and they would experience God's goodness. But the Jews had done their worship in such a way that they'd crowded out. They'd monopolized the space. They'd taken it all over. They were so intent on getting things right for themselves that the Gentiles, which were on God's priority, were not on their priority. It just got lower and lower to the point where there's no space for anyone who's not already part of the deal. And I wonder if that happens today. Those who are part of God's people, legitimately so, feel that worship is a priority for us. But it's possible for us to use all the resources, all the space, all the time, all the money, all the focus on our worship of God. And there's nothing left over for anyone who's on the outside. Those who maybe don't know God yet. Jesus regularly critiqued the leaders of his day. He said, you guys disregard the poor. You disregard those who are blind and the lame and the outcasts. You're so focused on your own stuff, you're forgetting about these people who God cares for. The sinners of his day. Jesus seemed to spend time with this. Jesus got it. He, he got the idea that God cares for these people and he spent time with them. Whereas in the temple, they all felt like outsiders. I think it's meant to be that a significant portion of space and time of the worship of the people of God is actually given towards including those who are on the outside. That's the pattern. Now at Inglewood, um, one of the values we have is invitationally what that means is we go about achieving our vision seeing people say yes to jesus at every point of their lives we do that we try to do that in an invitational way 
So we aim to be a church that extends the invitation for those who are not here yet. Those who are the outsiders, those who don't know God yet, those who feel they don't belong, we try and give them space and time and we try and be welcoming and inviting towards them so that they can explore and discover who this God is. God cares about those on the outside. So much so that when the, when the outsiders are being crowded out, uh, Jesus is not willing to sit back and say, well, you know, I'll just leave this as it is. And he's not just saying a few words. He goes in full on and turns things upside down so that God's invitation for the outsiders can be realized. See, if God is the donor, if God is the provider of everything, he has the right to say how his assets are going to be used. He is sovereign over us as individuals. He's sovereign over the church as his house. His intention, true then as it is today, is that his house will be a house of prayer for all nations. He wants every person to have a chance to connect with God. Every person in the world, in every nation, to hear the good news of Jesus. That means that the church needs to live and worship in such a way that is invitational, that connects and goes to those who are on the outside, that creates space. But when Jesus turned up on that day so long ago, God's house was not being used in the way that God had wanted it to. It had become corrupted. So what happens when our worship becomes corrupted, when we are not living and acting in line with the donor's intentions? Let's read the next section. Uh, Verse 18, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. Of course, you've got to kill him. He's saying something you don't like. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. So next morning, the Jewish leaders are out to kill Jesus, but they're scared because he's popular. The disciples leave the city. Uh, they, they go into the city to Bethany. They, they, they're coming back the next day. Probably they're staying at Lazarus and Mary and Martha's house. That's over in Bethany. They get there and they see this fig tree that yesterday was in leaf, strong and healthy. Not yet any figs though. And it's withered to the roots. It like, looks like it's just been killed. And Jesus uses that as a teaching moment for the disciples and teaches them about prayer. What you say, if you believe it, you'll receive it. The power of your words. He underlines the importance of prayer. Things happen when people pray. So there's a short teaching there. We're not going to focus on today. But in Mark's gospel, it's really interesting. Um, The cursing of the fig tree. The discovery, the cursing of the fig tree happens the day they go into the temple. They go out and they discover the fig tree in the morning, the next day as they're going in. It looks like this. So this is the angry Jesus slide. Let's have a look. At the start of the day, the fig tree is cursed. So the, the fig tree cursed, that's, the, that's what happens before. Then the, the temple is cleansed. Then they go back and the next morning, the fig tree is discovered being withered 
This is not a diseased tree. Jesus has cursed the tree and you will never eat. No one will ever eat fruit from you again. So Mark sets up the gospel this way. The other gospels don't do it this way, but Mark does this specifically. He has a purpose for this. He's saying something very clearly that when you read this, you get a sense. We've got to see these two events together. These two events belong together. The cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple, they are the same event. You've got to see them in light of one another. God sent prophet after prophet to the nation of Israel to warn them they were not living according to the donor's intention. That's the Old Testament prophets. They were not living according to God's call on their lives. And now Jesus says, the judgment has come. It's, that's the end for you guys. He's looking for fruit. He's found none. They'd proven one final time in their rejection of prayer, connecting with God and their exclusion of the Gentiles. They were not interested in obeying the donor's intentions. The temple and the whole nation is like the fig tree. It's under God's judgment and it's going to be destroyed. In less than a week, uh, Jesus will be dead. And though the temple will still stand, it's only another 40 years, one generation, before the temple is destroyed. Pulled down, one stone, not a stone left standing. The Romans come, they, they besiege the city, and they pull the whole thing apart. The withered fig tree is a sign to the Jewish leaders. Judgment has been given. That's the end. In Mark 13, just the next day, we read these words. Uh, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. They can't believe that this incredibly huge building, they think and how fantastic it is. Jesus says, not one stone will be left on another. The Jewish people and particularly the leaders had forgotten about the donor's intention. They allowed their worship to come about barter and trade. They carried stuff through the temple. They'd forgotten about connecting with God. They had allowed the machinery of their worship to push other people out. They neglected God's call on his people that they were meant to be a blessing to all nations. That was never what God intended. God is an invitational God. He constantly invites all people everywhere to come to worship. And those who've already come and worshipped, he then says, I want to use you to be a blessing to others. This message really is about honoring the donor's intention. God's house is meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. We're meant to connect with God and we're meant to invite others to do the same. Let's pray. Father, as we, this is a scary scripture. This really is the end of the process of God being merciful to the Jewish people. He's pronouncing judgment upon them. Lord, that is scary. It is scary how intentional Jesus is about tearing this thing apart. The judgment has come. Lord, help us take this to heart. 
Forgive us when we think that our lives, our bodies, everything that we own, forgive, forgive us when we think that this belongs to us. When everything, Lord, is a gift from you, you are the donor. You are the king. You are our God. All we have, everything we are, it belongs to you. And it needs to be used according to your intention. Lord, we want to live according to your intention. Let your heart as a donor, as a giver, as a creator, as a redeemer, be satisfied in our lives. Lord, may we be a house of prayer and may we be for all nations. Help us give proper attention, Lord, to those on the outside, for those who are wounded, for those who are different backgrounds to us, different situations than us. Rescue us, Lord, from that focus on ourselves. Lift up our eyes so we can see your plans, that all people might know you. That you can use us to be a blessing to others. That all nations might know this amazing God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Mike. I always want to know at the end of a message or something, what's something really simple that I can do? What's something that I can take away and go and just really grab hold of? And I love um, I love that God is an invitational God. And I think we have such a great opportunity right now, in fact, in that Easter is coming. And I think that there's never been an easier time, I think, to invite someone to join in in church with you. Because what you can do is invite them and then they can actually join online if they would rather not come into the building. Or you could even have maybe a watch party at your house and invite them to come and join you and watch online or invite them to come in the building. At the moment, we have a restriction of 150 people in our building. Wouldn't it be amazing if we got to that 150 people? right? And even if we had to try and find another way for people to join us in person, then we had to put some people outside or whatever it is, wouldn't it be amazing if, if this week, each one of us went and we said, hey, do you want to join in with me at Easter? And we shared, as Mike's just said, and we shared what we know about Jesus with people who we know, and I'm sure we all know someone who doesn't know Jesus yet. So can I challenge you, can I encourage you, each person, to reach out to someone this week and invite them to church. Whatever it is, invite them in person, invite them to join you online. However it is, we're in this beautiful phase where we can join with church in many different ways. And each way is a great way to join in church. So perhaps you've got a friend and you're like, oh, you invite them and maybe they think they don't want to come in person. Well, join them online. I think that's way more important than even just coming. You know, I, I think it's way more important that we do it with them, that we bring them along with us on the journey. So can we do that this week? Maybe it's as simple as sharing the events on Facebook. If you follow our Facebook page, we've got events for our Easter services that you can share. Send that to someone this week. Um, just say, hey, how are you going? Do you want to come to church with me? It's as simple as that. So can I encourage you to do that? Take that away. Invite someone to join with you in this, this weekend. And as we go out, I'm just going to pray a prayer of blessing on us and then we can 
go out to our Sundays. Thank you, God, for that you are an invitational God, that everything that you've given us, you ask us to share. And I pray each week for boldness, for each one of us, sorry, this week, for boldness for us. Give us someone even right now who we can invite to church, who we can send that Facebook invite to, or who we can join them online. Whatever it looks like, God, we, we want to share you this week. Bless each one as we've gathered now, Father. Would you send us out? I just want to send everyone out with your blessing, God. With a blessing over each one as we go out into our weeks. May we know the fullness of the love of God. And as we go out, we worship you, Father. We thank you for this time we've been able to have together. And we look forward to celebrating you next weekend together. We pray this, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go out, be blessed. Have a wonderful week, everyone. We'll see you at Easter time.